Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Welcome, everybody, to The Christian Optimist. I am uh, glad that you're with me today, as I have an episode where I'm going to be jumping back into my roots a little bit, talking about apologetics. Now, what is apologetics? Let's make sure we get that word correct. Apologetics comes from the Greek term apologia, or apologia, and it simply just means to make a defense. In fact, the, the normal place it's used is in that day was in a, in a trial scenario where a, a, an attorney is making a defense for something. And so we have that verse in Scripture where it says, Always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that's within you. And what Peter's saying in that verse is he's saying, Be prepared to give a legal defense, a justification for the position that you have in Christ. So apologetics in Christian theology is simply the, the work of defending the Christian faith, of proving the Christianity be, to be true uh, to doubters and to skeptics and to everybody else. Now, in today today's episode, I want to answer one simple question, and uh, the question is this, how can we know that the Bible is true? How can we know that the Bible is true? Now, that's a really important question, and I think every Christian should have some basis for reasons that they hold this to be true. And to kick us off, I want to play you, uh, it's about a minute and a half clip or so. Uh, I saw this come up the other day, it was, it's from Joe Rogan, and so if you know Joe Rogan, he's a, he's a podcaster, and, and uh, he had this fascinating discussion he had about how there's no manual for life. And so by way of entering into this discussion, here's Joe Rogan. having a conversation with a friend of mine about this yesterday we were talking about uh, how complex mind is and how complex life and society is but yet there's no real management book like there's no real there's no document that shows you this is the optimal way to exist and these are the pitfalls of existing other ways that, you know, you have these human reward systems built in and they can be hijacked by these various things. And this is the way the human body and the human mind exist optimally. And for whatever reason, there's no real structure that people can follow that's universally agreed upon. You know, like if you, like, say if you're a mechanic, right? And you're working on an engine like it's it's there's very clear documents that show you like these are the pistons this is the spark plug this is the carburetor if it's not clean it'll do this this is the problem with the gas line and you have to fit it this way and that way and so you do it all right and then boom it starts up and it works and you can fix things that way and you can build things that way we don't really have that for the most complex thing that we're aware of which is human existence. Okay, that's just such a treat of a clip from Joe Rogan, (laughs) because the quick answer to Joe Rogan is, yes, we do. It's literally called the Bible. Uh, It's in most languages in the world, though not all languages in the world, and the average American has, I think, something like six or seven copies of it sitting on their shelf. So Joe Rogan sets up this wonderful uh, dilemma that he's experiencing in his soul, which is there's no optimal way to live, according to Joe. Like, how can we know what is the right thing to do? How can we know what is the right way to live? How can we know the way that will truly bring life to yourself and everyone around you? To the Christian, the answer is, it's the Bible. And it is universally true. It speaks to every man in every culture in every time period, and it's unchanging. 
Now, the question is, if that claim is true, how, that, that's, a, that's a very high uh, emphasis placed on one book. So how can we trust it? How can we know at the end of the day that it is true, if that really is the universal book that is to be used? Now, what I want to do today in today's episode is you walk you through some of the things that I oftentimes teach. In fact, I just taught this class this last week, an hour-long class on answering that question. And uh, I, I think it's first important to make sure we realize what is the Bible. So anyone who's listening to us, just so we have some kind of like working understanding, what is the Bible? Okay, what is it? The Bible is a collection of 66 books that were written by 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period. Now, that's interesting. I, I think a lot of people think the Bible is just one book. It had one author. It, had, it, has, it has one voice in it. In fact, it's 66 books that were written by 40 authors, at least, about 40 authors. We're not entirely sure who wrote a couple uh, of the books. Like, for example, we're not entirely perfectly sure who wrote the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. But it's about 40 authors, and it's written over about a 1,500-year period. That's incredible. Within that, with across those 66 books that have been put together to form one cohesive kind of like compilation, one full book that we call the Bible or God's Word, uh, there's one consistent story and storyline. And that is uh, the, the story of God's people and God sending his Messiah to save people from their own sin and from the, the destruction that has come into the world as a result of sin. From start to finish, that is the great story. God's redeeming of his people, God's creation, redemption, and restoration of all things across all these 66 books. Now, the Bible's broken into two kind of main sections. You've got the Old Testament and you've got the New Testament. Now, I remember when I was a kid and I first heard about this, I think I was in a you know, a Catholic midweek class, like CCD class or something. And I didn't, to be honest with you, I didn't learn much in those CCD classes back then. But I do remember asking this question. The first time I ever heard that there was a New Testament, I remember just being, a, you know, a little, little third grader probably. And I, I just raised my hand. I said, how can there be a New Testament? I don't think I understood what Old Testament even meant. But how can, there, how can God say something new? And in my brain, I'm thinking like, did God just recently come down and, and say something brand new to us? So what do we mean by, mean by Old and New Testament? The Old Testament is the collection of writings that were written primarily by the prophets or written during the time period of the prophets that record the history of the world and God's dealing with his people from creation, that's the very first word in the first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, from creation when God spoke the world into being all the way through until about 400 years before the birth of Christ. That's the Old Testament. It records the story of particularly the fall of mankind, so the entrance of sin into the world, the devastation that came on the world because of sin, and then God's beginning of his restoration plan by calling Abraham out from the nations, that's Genesis chapter 12, and making a covenant with him where he was going to bless the nations through the lineage of Abraham. And the, the, the Old Testament really records the lineage of Abraham. It records God's chosen people under the Old Covenant and their responsibilities to live out the beauty and the ethic of the one true and living God in the midst of all the pagan nations around them. And the hope and the promise was in the Old Testament, if you do this, the nations are going to look in on you. They're going to see your law. They're going to see your ethic. They're going to see your way of life. And they're going to come to know the one true and living God as well. And they'll turn from their pagan gods that they've been worshiping that are no gods at all. 
The Old Testament wrapped up about 400 years before Christ, and then you have what's called the silent years or the silent period. 400 years where there really wasn't any prophetic activity. Now, in that 400 years, it's not that big things weren't happening in Israel. In fact, there are other books that are written during that time period describing and writing about the history of that time period, and it's fascinating. It's, it's amazing stuff, not only in, in, in Israel's history, but just in, in history in general, uh, like world history, there's a lot of things happening in that time period. You have the rise of the Roman Empire. You've got some of the great uh, Greek philosophers, you know, that, that, that are coming on the scene that day. You have major empires taking place across the world. So it was a, a ripe season of history, but there was no prophetic witness that was recording in words the words of God for 400 years. And then Jesus comes on the scene. The New Testament then is written by the followers of Jesus and by followers of those followers that are describing the events that took place in the life of Jesus and in the, early, in the life of the early church. Jesus being God's Messiah, the, the one who was told about all through the Old Testament, one day God's going to send his Messiah 400 years of waiting in the silent period, and then he shows up. Now, that's the New Testament. Now, we oftentimes talk about the the characteristics of Scripture. This is very important for Christians to know, and if you're a non-Christian listening to this, it's important for you to know what Christians believe about the Bible. The acronym that's oftentimes used, and I don't, you know, it's an acronym, so there's other words we can describe, but let me give you four, four helpful words that describe what we think about Scriptures. The acronym is SNAC. S-N-A-C. First, the S. We believe that the Bible is sufficient. It's sufficient. And what we mean by sufficient is that everything we, and I'm paraphrasing, this isn't like reading from a textbook right now, I'm paraphrasing what this means, but sufficiency means that everything we need in terms of information to know who God is, how we ought to live, and how we can achieve salvation is, is in Scripture. We don't need anything else outside of Scripture. We don't need a second religious book. We don't need other religious prophets to come and tell us. Everything we need to honor God and live for God in all eternity and in this life here and now is provided for us by the Word of God. It's sufficient. Now, this doesn't mean that God has not spoken in other ways. So, for example, uh, the Scriptures tell us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Nature itself is a resounding fingerprint of God's existence in the world. So Romans chapter 1 is a really key verse in this. Romans chapter 1, I think it's verse 28. Let me read it to us right now. Romans chapter 1, verse 28 to 30, uh, reads this. Uh, no, verses 20 to 21. I'm so sorry about that. It says, "For his, uh, what can be known about God, verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the world, ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Okay? That's verses 18 through 20. Now, what's that saying? It's saying all a person has to do is look up at a starry night sky or look at a human being, and, and they can, there's a witness inside of them that's saying there is a God. But, but, that is not... Uh, Okay, so that is not the fullness of everything you need to know. You don't just need to know that God exists. You can know that by looking at Scripture. Um, but the second, the second letter in the acronym, the N, S-N-A-C-K, the N stands, A-C, stands for necessary. Scripture is necessary. You can know that God exists by looking at nature. 
But you can't know that you have to have faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and what his blood being shed on the cross really means and what the, what the resurrection of Jesus actually means for all time and space and for all creation. You can't know those things by looking at a tree or by looking at the stars. You need the revealed word of God to teach you those things. And so it's necessary, okay? The third letter is A, authoritative. Scripture is sufficient, it's necessary, it's authoritative. Well, this means that the Bible is the final authority on all issues. This doesn't mean that the Bible speaks directly into every potential ethical question or decision we're ever going to make. So, for example, you know, when in the days the Bible was being written, they didn't have self-driving cars, okay? And so the ethics behind self-driving cars uh, is, uh, is not perfectly manually coded in the, you can't turn to a particular page and just say, here's exactly the ethics for how self-driving cars, you know, what are the risks associated with this and who's responsible if there's a crash. You can't get that from the scripture. But what you get in the scripture are principles whereby you can look to every culture, every time, every experience that you might have and see the principles of God's people, the law of God that can be applied in every single circumstance and you can know how you ought to live. And at the end of the day, it's the scriptures that are authoritative. It doesn't matter what mom and dad thought. It doesn't matter what other religious teachers teach. It doesn't matter what other, what other religious texts say. The Bible is the word of God and therefore the final authority on all issues of life and all issues of who God is and what he's called us to. Period. End stop. That's it. Lastly, the C is clear. It's clear. On every major issue, we're not questioning what the Bible says. I know in today's day and age, we don't like to take convictional stances on almost anything. And so we like to just argue and pretend like the Bible isn't clear on things. But it, that's not true. The Bible is clear. We want to know who God is, who is Jesus, uh, what, what is his moral law, what, what's required of us in the Ten Commandments, what is the curse as a result of sin, and how is a person saved? This is all fundamentally clear. We're not, we're not arguing over this. This doesn't mean that everything in the Bible is clear. There are certainly issues that great minds and great theologians wrestle with exactly, you know, you know, how does this work out and, and, and what did this particular passage mean? Did it mean this or did it mean this? I call those oftentimes secondary issues. On all the major issues, it's clear. We can know what God says. So that's a, just an overview of what the Bible is. It's, it's God's word. It's sufficient. It's necessary. It's authoritative. It's clear. And it's beautiful. And I'm just going to add this one. This is, this is not a B. Otherwise, you have snack B. <laughs> this, but it's beautiful. The Bible, you know, Psalm 119 says, the Bible is, is better than honey on our lips. It's, it's a light to our path. It's a lamp unto our feet. But blessed are, the way, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. The blessed life is living out God's commands and decrees and everything that he has written in, in, the, in the scriptures. It's beautiful. Now, I'm going to give you some evidences that I believe are compelling for why I believe the Bible to be true. But before I do that, there's actually one piece of evidence that is not, um, it's not the type of evidence that you think I'm going to give. There's a lot of evidence of why the Bible is true, and I think it's overwhelming. I think it's enough that if you were in a court of law and you had to make a, a decision, is it true or not true, I think at the end of the day, you have to say it's true. The evidence stacks up. But that's not the reason why I believe the Bible is true. All of those evidences support my faith. The number one reason I believe the Bible is true is for two, two reasons. Number one, there is a faith inside of me that believes it's true. I take the Bible as God's word ultimately by faith. Now, this is important, and this is going to cause some people to scratch their heads, but actually for the Christian, I want you to know 
that all the evidence in the world, and this is so important, all the evidence in the world is not going to convince the skeptic uh, that the Bible is God's word. I've given this class to skeptics, to non-believers. I've, I've sent people that are far brighter than me in the work they've done and the research they've done that have shown overwhelming the clarity, the honesty, the historicity of God's word. And they've come back and said, I just don't believe it. And I'll say, what's your reason? They just say, I just don't believe it. <laughs> I, just, I just choose not to. Ultimately, that's a faith statement, right? They're, 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 they're expressing their faith, which is not in the Bible. They don't know what it's in, but it's not in the Bible. But at the end of the day, while the evidence supports the Christian faith in the Word of God, it, that's not the basis of my taking the Word of God at face value. The basis of my faith, the basis of my belief in God and God's Word is faith. I believe that God is good. I believe that he has revealed himself to me. And there is an inner compulsion within me as a Christian that testifies that the Bible is true. The Bible is self-attesting. That's the classic terminology that's used. All a person has to do is read the word of God. And the image of God within them, the, the fabric of their soul, begins to resonate with the truth that is found in the Word of God. If they give it a fair hearing, if they give it a fair listening, they will see the fingerprints of God all over it. And so again, the evidences that I'm going to share are not the, the reason why someone should believe. Uh, I think they support why we should believe, but at the end of the day, we believe because it's true. And our human experience shows us that it's true. So secondly, with that is our human experience. I've been a Christian now for about 20 years. And I can tell you that living without the Bible and living with the Bible are, are two radically different experiences. One gave death and one gave life. One literally left me empty, saying, literally praying a prayer, God, this life feels empty. If you're real, drag me out of this. Because you know, I, was, I was getting into all kinds of vices in this world, and I was experiencing the vanity of it all. It was all meaningless. It was all empty. It promised life, and it was giving me nothing. And I was running into all these barriers in my life. And that was, by the way, having a veneer on my life of having things together. I was the captain of my soccer team. I got pretty good grades. Like I had good friends. I had a lot, in terms of the eyes of the world, a lot of things going for me, per se, on the outside. But on the inside, I got home at night, and when I was alone, I could tell you there was an emptiness that was not being satisfied by the vanity of the pleasures of this world. And I was crying out for more. And, and now I can tell you, having lived by the code of the Bible, having lived by God's word, being filled by the Spirit, living by God's word, and chasing hard after Jesus, you live according to the word of God. Your life, it's not going to go well for you in the sense that you're promised prosperity and you're promised you know, fame and your promised fortune, your promise that all your relationships, no, 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 you're not promised that. But what you are promised is, is the, the hole in your soul that recognizes the vanity of your current life will be filled by Jesus and he will be enough for you. And he will lead you in paths that you never would have chosen for yourself. But as you go down them, you will find God is overwhelmingly true and good and his message is true and it's worthy of dying for. I know it's crazy, but those two things, just the inner sense of the divine within me that, that recognizes God and his word, and my experience of living out the Bible, I can never go back. That you, 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 there's, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to me, but I don't think there's anything you could do to me that would get me to say the Bible's not true on those things alone, let alone all the evidence that is stacked up alongside of it. Okay, now with that as a background, I think that's important for you as a Christian to say, look, if you don't remember all the evidences, 
Like if you, if, if you, if I give you all these evidences and then you forget it and you just know somewhere there's a podcast somewhere that's got some good stuff on why the Bible is true. And as long as I know where it is, I can pull it up at any time. But at the end of the day, your faith is built on faith. That is a strong faith. Your faith does not need to be built on the evidences. Even though all the evidences are there, they will strengthen and support you, but your faith is strong and bright and vibrant if it's just on faith alone. Amen. All right, I'm preaching. Let's get to some of these things. There's three categories I want to get to here. And the first one is the manuscript evidence. The manuscript evidence. Now, what do we mean by manuscripts? Forget the Bible just for a second. What's a manuscript? A manuscript is a copy of an ancient document. Right, so if you if you were to pull up a picture of old manuscripts from thousands of years ago, or from a you know from even a thousand years ago, these things typically are not in pristine condition. They're they're typically ancient. They look like they've been beaten up a little bit. Oftentimes, manuscripts are just you know edges, or even just clips of a you know a little piece of a paper that they have a corner of, or they you know it, you have a manuscript, but there's a couple holes in it. Rats chewed through it, or it got went through a fire, and a little bit you can't really read it anymore. Manuscripts are ancient documents, which are in a ver- variety of different degrees of, uh, you know, condition. <laughs> it's like having baseball cards. <laughs> I got a large baseball card condition. There's a big difference between a mint, a mint condition Ken Griffey rookie junior and, uh, you know, a fraying at the edges condition uh, Ken Griffey junior rookie card. And there's different conditions of manuscripts as well. Well, there is a whole field of science that's called textual criticism that is applied well beyond the Bible, but that is the, the study of ancient manuscripts. And within that field, there's all these ways that the scientists who are in that field answer a number of questions. Number one, when, when is this manuscript from? You know, that's, that's a question scientists ask. They dig up an old manuscript from the field, and they answer the question, when was this from? Well, how are you going to figure that out? Well, you know, that, that's the field of archaeology, that's the field of looking at the, the grammar, the actual language that's being used, um, where was it found, what, what other archaeological things were found around it, when is the document saying it was written. These are all things that those who are scientists in textual criticism, those are the questions they answer. When is this document from? Where is it from? Is it legitimate or is it a forgery? Uh, is it a copy of a copy or a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy? And, and if it's a copy and not the original source document, is the copy from a reliable source. These, you can imagine, like, over time, historians have developed unbelievable sciences in the field of textual criticism. Well, one of the things that's very important when you're trying to understand what, is the original, what does an original document say is, what do the copies that we have say? So let me go backwards just a step. When I talk about the manuscript evidence for the Bible, we do not have the original scrolls that, like, say, Isaiah wrote, the prophet Isaiah, when he was writing, I think he was around 700, 725 B.C., before Christ, years before Christ. We don't have those original scrolls. What we have are copies of those scrolls. We don't have the Apostle Paul's original manuscript of the, of the book of Romans. What we have are early copies of those manuscripts, and many of them. And so in the field of textual criticism, what we do is we go back to those copies, we put them all together, and we're able to look and say we can have with unbelievable certainty, confidence, what the original said. Because of the way all these copies that are spread out geographically across a great region, we can tell you, basically, we know what it said with with great certainty. Now, let me tell you a bit of a comparison. So people oftentimes say, you know, you'll hear someone say this, the Bible was written you know, hundreds of years later by people who didn't even, weren't around for the events. That's actually not true. So that's not true. 
When it comes to the original manuscripts, the Bible was written by eyewitnesses. So the, the writer Luke, what we're studying in our church, for example, he begins the Gospel of Luke, which is the life of Jesus, you know, and the events that were surrounding his life and death and resurrection. He begins that by saying, I went and interviewed eyewitnesses. He interviewed the eyewitnesses. Matthew was a direct disciple of Jesus. So was John, who wrote another one of the Gospels. He was a direct disciple of Jesus. John, in fact, was one of his inner three, right? Peter, James, and John were in the inner three. They were with Jesus on the mount when he was transfigured before them. Mark, it's believed, is our earliest of the four Gospels that are in the Bible. We believe Mark wrote the earliest one. He was not a direct disciple, but we believe he was recording Peter's words, that he essentially, he, he was writing down what Peter had instructed him about Peter's time with Jesus. So, so, no, it's not true that these were written by people who never followed Jesus. They were written by eyewitnesses and by disciples of Christ, okay? And uh, because of that, you know, this, this is not just, you know, the game of telephone, recording things many, many years later through many years. It was the people who were there. Now, in terms of the manuscript evidence, let me give you a few of these. So, there are other ancient works besides the Bible in the old, in, you know, that, are, that we have uh, access to the copies of them. Other ancient works where we don't have the original document, but we have copies of them. And in the world of textual criticism, we take the copies that we have very seriously. They give us very strong conclusions on what the original said. So, for example... There was a famous historian named Tacitus, a very important historian. Actually, his overlap with, uh, you know, what he, what he wrote about Jesus is actually important in history. But Tacitus's annals were written in 110 AD, 110 AD, right? So think Jesus' birth right around the switch from BC to AD. So Tacitus wrote his annals about 110 AD. The earliest manuscript we have of Tacitus is from 850 AD. And we have about 36 manuscripts spanning about a 200-year range. Okay, that means that there's a 750-year gap between when Tacitus wrote and the earliest copy that we have, right? 700, 750 years, and we have 36 manuscripts. And we take, we take it pretty strongly that we know what Tacitus said. Let's take another one here. Herodotus's history was written in the 400s BC. So that's about the time that the Old Testament was coming to a close. The earliest manuscript we have is from 250 years after Herodotus's history was written, right? 250 years after he wrote, that's the early, and that's a really old, right? That's an old thing. 250 years afterwards, and there's 106 manuscripts that we have, okay? 106 manuscripts written 250 years after that. How about Caesar's Gallic Wars? Caesar's Gallic Wars, that's a pretty big book, very important book, written in 50 BC, that's about 50 years before Jesus was around, all right? The earliest manuscript was writ- we have is from 850 years after Caesar's Gallic Wars was written, and we have 250 copies of those manuscripts. Again, this is, this is telling us, in terms of textual criticism, we really know what the Gallic Wars is all about. Let me give you a couple more. Pliny's Natural History, written 79 AD. The earliest manuscript that we have is from 400 years after he wrote it. That's when that, the copy that we have is from 400 years after. We have about 200 or so copies of those manuscripts that are spread out across the ancient world. Something like uh, uh, Demosthenes, uh, Demosthenes, the works of Demosthenes, written in 300 BC. The earliest manuscript, 300 years after De- Demosthenes wrote. We have about 450 of those. How about Plato's, Plato's work? Plato's Tetralogy is written in 400 BC. 
The earliest manuscript is 200 years after Plato lived. And we have about 230 of those manuscripts. So if you're getting what I'm saying, we're talking about hundreds of years, at some point like with Caesar's Gallic Wars, 850 years between when it was written and what the earliest copy is. And we're talking about a couple hundred uh, total manuscripts that we have from the ancient world. When it comes to the New Testament, the earliest manuscript that we have is from about 125 AD. Now, that's within about 30 years of the death of the last apostle, which is the apostle John, who died somewhere near the end of the first century. So rather than a 100-year gap period, we have copies from within 30 years, within 30 years of the life of the final, uh, the, the final death of the final apostle, and we have 5,856 manuscripts. Okay, now, if you're a skeptic and you're hearing this, you might be saying, ah, that doesn't matter. 30 years is still a long time. And, uh, you know, 5,856 manuscripts. So what? It doesn't matter how many you have. They're copies, they're forgeries. No, 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 no. I, if that's your answer to what I'm suggesting, then you functionally have to throw out all history. The evidence we have in support of the New Testament, 5,856 manuscripts that are putting together to know with certainty what the original said within a 30-year period, not hundreds of years, within a 30-year period, is so overwhelming that if you're not going to receive it as we know what the original Bible said and the manuscript evidence is overwhelming, you at the same time must throw out all history. We cannot know what Plato said. We cannot know what Caesar wrote, what Tacitus wrote, what uh, Pliny wrote, what Demosthenes wrote. We, we, We can't know any of it if that's your case. Because the evidence is overwhelming in this field of science for the writing of the New Testament. Now, I could do a whole piece on this on the Old Testament as well, but I'm going to leave it with the New Testament. By the way, the source for these numbers comes from the Institute for New Testament Textual Research uh, in Munster, Germany. And uh, there's just a wonderful quote here from F.F. Bruce. He says, There is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good attestation as the New Testament. So here's what I'm saying. Look, if you like history... If you're, if you're a student of history, the, you must come to the evidence for the New Testament and you must say it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming what we have that we can, we can with certainty know what the apostles actually wrote. Like, like we, we can just know. That we're not questioning these things. We can with, with the kind of certainty that, uh, that, that, that modern science has of historic documents, we can know what they said and what they wrote. We're not questioning those things. So again, you come to the person on the street who says, ah, it was written by hundreds of years later, and you know, these things aren't true. The, the evidence is in. History has proven this to be, the Bible to be true. Um, all right, so the manuscript evidence, the manuscript evidence. Now, secondly, I want to look at the archaeological evidence. Archaeology is a fascinating field. In fact, if I could be Indiana Jones, I, I would. Like if God came to me right now and said, Rafe, don't be a pastor, be Indiana Jones— I, uh, if I could take my family along with me, <laughs> I think I would very much enjoy that life, okay? Um, I love archaeology. It's amazing, and it's the study of history, and in archaeology, what you're doing is you're digging up the artifacts of history that are demonstrating to you and, and, and proving moments of history to you. Now, when you look at biblical history, there's a lot of skeptics who over the years have looked at parts of the Bible or portions of the Bible, and they have said, look, that story is just not true, right? 
So let me give you a couple examples. For years, for years, people said that King David was a fictional character. Maybe something like a King Arthur, right? He's a mythological figure that the Israelites developed, but he wasn't real. And and and, and the reason they were saying that is because if, if they were saying if he was really over a super over the superpower Israel in that time period, we would have archaeological evidence outside of the Bible showing us that that's the case. But since we don't have archaeological evidence, the chances of him being a real king are, are, are very small. Another example they often used to say is, look, one of the great stories of the Old Testament is that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, right? Well, there's no evidence of the Israelites being slaves in Egypt in archaeology. Therefore, that's a tough one to prove, and it's just not the case that they were there. Here's the problem is that for everything, and not everything, but for many of the cases that skeptics often pointed at the Bible and said there's no archaeological record for this, now, over and over and over again, archaeology is, un- is uncovering these artifacts that are proving everything in the Bible true, overwhelmingly. We now know David, in fact, was a king in the same time period that the Bible says he was a king, right? And, and so some of these archaeological finds are so startling that it really leaves skeptics kind of scratching their head baffled. (laughs) And it's very overwhelming evidence. Again, this is not the reason to believe, but in terms of science supporting everything the Bible has said, the Bible is not just a compilation of mythological stories. The Bible is written in time, in our time and space. It makes claim on our time and space. And, And if the stories in the Bible are not true, then the Bible is not true because they claim for them to be true. And so the Christian case is that archaeology should support everything we're saying, and in fact, it does. Over and over again, it does. Let me walk you through a handful of these. I'm going to encourage you to—I'm going to uh, try to put some links in here so you can look some things up on your own. Some of these archaeological finds are just fascinating. Like, they look cool. These things they've dug up are amazing. So— uh, like, let me walk you through some of these. So some archaeological finds are important. Some people claimed that the, the actual Hebrew language, so I'm a pastor, I was trained in the Hebrew language, I love reading the Hebrew language, I'm not phenomenal at it, but I'm good enough that I can engage my Old Testament and read and really enjoy it, um, and I want to get better. That's a, that's a goal of mine is actually to become expert at the Hebrew language by the time I reach age 45. We'll, we'll see if that, if that happens. I work on it daily. But many people said the Hebrew language actually did not come out to a, a much later date than the writings of the Bible. So the, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. And so if they say if the Hebrew language didn't come about to a much later date, then that's evidence that the, the Old Testament is really just stuff that was written much, much later as if it was old. That the, the, do you see what I'm saying? So the, if the Hebrew language didn't actually come into effect, let's say, I'm going to make this number up, but until 200 BC, then the, the prophet Isaiah writing in Hebrew in 750 BC is just a farce. Really what happened is someone about 200 BC just said this is the prophet Isaiah writing in Hebrew. So that was a problem. We weren't sure when the Hebrew language came into being. And then we found the Gezer calendar. And the Gezer calendar is I'm looking at this, this clay tablet that has Hebrew writing written into it. It's an early form of Hebrew writing written into it from the 10th century BC. This is demonstrating that Hebrew was not only a known language, but it was a written language as early as the 10th century BC. This, is, this, this was a startling find because it, it, it undercut the claim of the, the Hebrew language evidence being missing for the time period of the prophets when they were writing in Hebrew. 
and completely supported the evidence that indeed the prophets were writing in the time period that they were writing. Here's a second one. The Shalom inscription. This is a, a really neat looking rock that you've got to see that describes a story from the Bible which is discussing the construction of Hezekiah's tunnel. Again, Hezekiah and the tunnel he built, it's just a story in the, in the scriptures. But here we uncovered this, this separate from the Bible, it looks like a big tablet, this big rock looking thing with, with inscriptions written into it, describing from a different perspective the exact events that were written in the Bible. Not contradicting the biblical account at all, just writing it from, you know, someone else writing a history on this particular clay tablet. What does it do? It supported the reign of Hezekiah and the construction project of his tunnel. Just, again, these are things that skeptics would point to and be like, these are just fabrications, these are not true events that actually happened. Sure enough, they really did happen. Another one, this is a really cool looking thing. It's a big, tall, uh, I'm guessing that's about five, six, five feet tall or so, um, kind of blackish looking pillar, almost looks like a tombstone. It's called the Mernapta Stel. This mentions the nation of Israel as one of Egypt's most elevated enemies. That's huge. So, According to the Bible, Israel was a superpower during the reign of King David, and then on and off as the, as the nation itself kind of descended into, you know, rebellion and ultimately being overtaken by Nebuchadnezzar and the, and the Persian Empire after that. But during its, its, its high point, during King David, during uh, the reign of Solomon and some of the other, the better kings after Solomon in Israel, or well, in Judah particularly, uh, they were enemies of Egypt. At times, they tried to make partnerships with Egypt. At times, they were enemies with Egypt. At the very least, they were on Egypt's radar as significant a superpower in the, in the, in the area. Forever, people said that's not the case. There was no superpower in Israel. Well, sure enough, we dig up this Mernapta stele, and there it's listed in this Egyptian stele that, uh, that Israel is listed as one of Egypt's most elevated enemies, just as the Bible said. Again, proving the skeptics false. Um, one of my favorite ones is uh, the Balaam inscription. This is a neat looking, it looks like a tile with, with some writing on it. If you know the story of Balaam in the Old Testament, uh, as the people of God were walking through the, te- the, uh, the wilderness, as the, after they escaped Egypt, there was a 40-year period where they were wandering in the wilderness because of their sin before they came into Israel, the Promised Land. And while they were there, one of the surrounding nations hired a famous, in that day, what was a famous prophet named Balaam. He hired him to come and curse the Israelites, right? So this king is looking on the Israelites wandering through the desert. He's beginning to get scared. He says, man, I got to curse these people before they come and take me over. So he hires Balaam to come and curse them. Now, if you're a skeptic to the Bible, that story just sounds totally made up. It's like, what is this? And there's some supernatural things that happen. God actually speaks to Balaam. Uh, that, that's actually where you get the talking donkey story in the Bible. These are like some of the supernatural stories in the Bible that are like, wow, God does some amazing things. Well, Forever, that was just, uh, in terms of the eyes of the skeptics, that's a throwaway story. There's no historicity to that whatsoever. And then they, they dig up this tile, the Balaam inscription. And sure enough, what do they find? They find that Balaam, son of Beor, that's exactly how he's listed in the scriptures, was indeed a historical person who was a well-known prophet of a foreign nation. He, he was a soothsayer of a foreign nation. Exactly as the Bible said he was in the exact time period that they said he was. This is incredible. This is not just a little find. They found that Balaam was a real person. 
I could keep going. They, they found the cylinder of Nabonidus, which affirms portion of the, the story of Daniel. They found the stele of Zakur, which mentions Hazael, king of Aram. They found that David was an actual historical figure. Now, here's one of my very favorite ones. This is actually a recent historical. Now, by the way, there's like amazing websites that are tracking all the latest findings on, uh, on archaeological digs all the time. This kind of stuff pops up on a week-to-week basis. They're constantly finding incredible, and I actually think right now, I think the last 30 years, we've actually seen an increase in archaeological finds supporting the Bible. I think God's doing something, and I think one of the reasons we're uncovering all this is God is releasing some of this to provide overwhelming evidence for the historicity of the scriptures. But in Tel, uh, in Tel el-Hammam, uh, if you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible, uh, the story is that Sodom and Gomorrah, they were these two wicked cities that Abraham's nephew Lot fled from. There was, that's a whole other story, what was going on there. There was significant issues of, of uh, gross morality taking place in, in Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, as they fled from it, we're told in the scriptures that uh, essentially a meteor, a meteor shower struck this. I mean, fire from the sky Fire and sulfur came from the sky and destroyed these cities and turned it into a pillar of salt, turned it into pillars of salt. Now, a handful of things. Forever, that's just been a make-believe story that skept- in terms of skeptics towards the Bible. They say that's a make-believe story. There's no evidence for Sodom and Gomorrah. There's no evidence for two cities in this region being burned by, you know, fire and sulfur out of the sky. And then, sure enough, recent history, they uncover two towns— good little cities in that day, uh, in the exact area where Sodom and Gomorrah would have been. Um, and what they find there is startling. And uh, you got to look this up to see it. They find that some of the artifacts have this glass-like uh, construction to them. Now, when the, when the archaeologists first found this, they thought, man, we thought we had found something in a certain time period, but based on this glass that we're finding, this must date to a much later time period than what we thought it was. This can't be Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and then they kept looking, and they, they, like another thing they found, I'm going to get back to the glass in just a second, so hold on to that. Uh, other things they found was they found like skeletons of bodies that had been blown and crisped like right in the, right in the middle of a spinal cord. Like, as if someone was standing behind, a, like, a stone fence, and a blast came and, like, blew the top part of their body off, okay? So it was a very bizarre find, but these glass bits they found, they took to a lab, because they're like, what is this? Like, what, what happened here? And what the lab results came back, and this was all over. This isn't, like, one little microfiber. This is, like, this was evidenced all over these towns. They found that what, the only thing that could have caused the, 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 the glass, if you will, to be made in the way that it was, was something like an atomic bomb going off on this site. And since there were no atomic bombs in the time period of this, the only other thing that could have caused it was a meteor coming out of the sky. So sure enough, what have we found? We found Sodom and Gomorrah. And how did Sodom and Gomorrah get destroyed? Now the archaeological evidence is in. There's no questioning this. We know how these two towns were destroyed and when they were destroyed. In exactly the time period the Bible says, they were destroyed. In the area the Bible said they were destroyed. And they were destroyed by fire and sulfur coming out of the sky. They were destroyed by a meteor shower. This is startling. (laughs) I don't know how you look at that. And even if you're a skeptic, even even if you're like angry over that story being true, you have to at least scratch your head and be like, that's pretty cool. Like, that's amazing. The, Bi- the Bible nailed it. 
and it did. And what I just want to tell you today is the archaeological evidence, I, I gave you six or seven of them today, the archaeological evidence for the scriptures is overwhelming. It, it, every time someone says, yeah, it can't be true because of this or this or this, it would the Bible proves true. Archaeology shows it is true. The history, is, the historicity of the Bible does not fall short. And uh, so I would encourage you, if that's something you're interested in, do more homework. So I, would, I would suggest that you subscribe to the newsletters of some of these biblical archaeology um, newsletters, because this kind of stuff doesn't show up in mainstream news, but it's some of the most exciting sciences happening today. All right, so we've looked at the manuscript evidence, we've looked at the archaeological evidence, and now lastly, I want to look at the prophetic evidence, the prophetic evidence. So what do I mean by the prophetic evidence? Well, in the Bible, there are all kinds of prophecies that are made. Now, a prophecy, what is a prophecy? A prophecy is when a prophet, someone who's speaking on behalf of God, records events that are going to take place in their future, um, and then that event comes about exactly as the prophet said. In the Old Testament, if you're a false prophet, so if you get anything wrong in your prophecy, the penalty is death. And there are examples of false prophets in the Bible where they prophesied something that would happen. They said they were speaking for God when in fact they weren't. Their prophecy did not come true, and they were put to death. That's how serious prophecy was held by the people of God. Because, we, because the people of God always believed God, God would speak. In, now, we believe God has spoken through the word of God. He spoke through, his, through the apostles. He spoke through the prophets. He's recorded his word for all history to know exactly what God has said. We are, we are not without prophetic witness. We have that in the word of God. In the, in the Old Testament days and during the life of uh, Jesus in the early church, there were the apostles and prophets who were bearing witness to the truth of God by speaking the words of God and recording them. And that prophetic witness is incredible. The prophets spoke of events that were to come with an overwhelming uh, specificity, clarity, and accuracy. Uh, there are 2,000 prophecies, at least, in the Bible, uh, including at least 300 prophecies that have implications for the life of Jesus Christ. And there are no prophetic failures. There are zero prophetic failures. Um, so let me give you, like for example, let, let me just say this one to start. Take the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel has all kinds of uh, prophecies that are written. It describes, uh, you know, Daniel b before, beforehand describes these four kingdoms that will come onto the face of the earth. And, and, in, and in one chapter of Daniel, he describes the rise of Alexander the Great, the breaking up of Alexander the Great's kingdom uh, among his four generals, and, uh, you know, the kind of downward fall, how two of the generals would behave one way, the other two would behave another way. The, the, the level of detail of clarity without, he doesn't say Alexander the Great's name, but he describes him. I mean, it, anyone reading that chapter just knows he's describing Alexander the Great's kingdom. The level of detail that Daniel wrote about exactly what would happen with Alexander the Great's kingdom is so clear and specific and accurate that many modern historians reject the idea that Daniel wrote the book of Daniel when he did, hundreds of years before Alexander the Great came on the scene. Because they look at it and they say, no one could have written that with that specificity. That has to be a forgery written after the fact. The problem is, is that history has shown, and textual criticism has shown, and we have great certainty that Daniel wrote exactly when the Bible says Daniel wrote, well before Alexander the Great. And this is much to the, you know, the frustration of historians who don't want there to be biblical truth, uh, biblical prophetic truth. They want 
They want to be able to say that the prophecies aren't real, that they were written at a later date. Sure enough, they weren't. Daniel wrote before the life of, of Alexander the Great, and he was specific. Now, when it comes to prophecies, some of the best, some of my favorite ones are in regards to Jesus. Who would he be? What would he be like? Let me read to you just a short list of, you know, none of these are minor. I'm going to read, and in a minute I'm going to get to a really important one, but um, these, these prophecies. So Micah chapter 5, 2, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7, 14, he'd be born of a virgin. Genesis 49, 10, he'd be of the tribe of Judah. Hosea 11, 1, he would live in Egypt. Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5, a messenger would go before him. That's John the Baptist, of course. Deuteronomy 18, 15, he would be a prophet. Jesus spoke of events to come, specifically and especially when he spoke in Matthew 24, the destruction of the, prof- of the, of the temple. Jesus was a prophet. Psalm 78, verses 2 to 4, he would speak in parables. We all know that was a common way Jesus taught. Zechariah eleven twelve. he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. He fulfilled that on Palm Sunday. Psalm 35, 11, he would be falsely accused. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. Isaiah 53, we're going to get to in just a moment, he would be crucified. Psalm 22, 18, soldiers would gamble for his clothes. That's exactly what happened, we're told in the gospel accounts of his life. As Jesus was being crucified, the, the guards gambled for his tunic. Zechariah 12.10 said his side would be pierced. We know that the guard stuck a spear into Jesus' side, at which point water and blood flowed out, which is what happens to a body that's been crucified, and the, the liquids of the lungs gather up kind of in the upper torso. And if you were to stick a spear in the side of it, water would flow out and then blood would flow out. Um, and it, just as Zechariah said, the prophet, uh, he'd be buried with the rich, according to Isaiah 53. We know Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish elite class, functionally, uh, requested Jesus' body and laid him in Joseph's tomb, a, a, a rich man's tomb, just as Isaiah 53, 9 said. And Psalm 16, verse 10 says that he would rise from the dead. These and many more all give clear, the point of the prophecies in the Old Testament were to say, don't miss the Messiah when he comes. He's got to fulfill all these things. And if he doesn't fulfill all these things, it's not him. And there were false messiahs that came and went that did not fulfill all the prophecies in the Old Testament. Jesus did. And he fulfilled even prophecies that many didn't recognize were prophecies of the Messiah. But in hindsight, we look back and say, how do we miss it? It was speaking of him the whole time. One of the most important prophecies uh, in the Old Testament, most thorough, is Isaiah 53 that speaks of the suffering servant. Let me walk through some of this with you. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 11. Again, I think this is about 700 BC, maybe a little more than that. 700 years before Christ. The prophet Isaiah writes about of the Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Pause there. He pierced for our transgressions? That sounds like it's talking about crucifixion. Remember Jesus had nails put through his hands and feet? And, and what was he pierced for? For our transgressions. He who did no wrong was, was killed for us. He, he, he took our place underneath the wrath of God, bearing our punishment for us. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned, the, the, the prophet continues, every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Jesus did not rebuke uh, Pontius Pilate, nor did he rebuke the Pharisees when he was held trial before them. He never opened his mouth. He remained silent. I mean, virtually silent. He didn't try to defend himself. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. That verse, lambs do not resist their own death. They will walk casually to their own death. That's exactly how Jesus went. Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. It goes on, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people? That's a prophetic way of saying he was killed. Then listen, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. As I said, Joseph of Arimathea took his body, laid him in a rich man's tomb. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. What is that saying? He will prolong his days after he's made an offering? That's saying he'll resurrect from the dead. The Messiah will resurrect from the dead. It goes on, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. My friends, that is so clearly speaking about Jesus that one has to literally have blinders on their eyes to read Isaiah 53 and not conclude that the writer that was writing in 750 BC was writing clearly about Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, killed, led to the slaughter, did not open his mouth, crucified, had his side pierced, laid in a tomb, but rose from the grave and, and bore all of our iniquities. The prophetic witness is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. One has to only open Isaiah 53. I love opening Isaiah 53 with people outside of the Christian faith and just saying, who does this remind you of? And having them say, the little I know of Jesus, it sounds like him. And then telling them that was written 750 years before Jesus. The prophetic witness is overwhelming. Now again, I've walked you through the manuscript evidence, the archaeological evidence, and the prophetic evidence. But, but, what I want you to realize is that is not the basis of our trust in the Bible. The evidence support, it strengthens us. Think of it like, like, like a really good, you know, like brick and mortar around the foundation, but it is not the foundation itself. The foundation itself is faith. We believe it because the, the testimony of the witness of, of the Spirit inside of us bears witness to us that it is true. It must be true. We read the pages, we just know, we see it's true. And then we live it out, and yes, it brings life. It is good. It's what God's word should be in our life. And then the evidence is overwhelming. The evidence is in. It's God's word. All right. I hope you had a little fun with that episode. I had a fun time recording it. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, give me a five-star rating. Spread this around. Get the word out to others. Uh, My aim is to equip the church to live faithfully in our crazy day that we are living in. Tune in again next week. As uh, Lord willing, we'll be back with some more content. Lord willing, see you next week.